and welcome to this week's podcast. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and I just want to say we're really glad that you joined us today. If you're new to the church, make sure to visit us online at hilltopchurchnv.com and fill out one of the online connection cards. We'd love to get connected with you and just say hello. While you're there, you can also find out more information about the church, get connected with Bible studies, submit prayer requests, and even find other sermons on the website as well. Now, make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible, and your notepad ready to go, because we're about to get started with today's message. Um, as, as today was approaching, I was thinking, you know, what is, what is my favorite thing about my mom? Or what are some of my favorite things about my mom? And like, maybe, how would you answer that? What are some of your favorite things about your mom? You can just say it. Go ahead. Cooking. Cooking. <laughs> Knew somebody was going to say it. What else? What's that? Kind. She's kind. Yes. Patience. Love. Compassion. Unconditional love. Funny, yeah. Persistent. Ooh, wait. What does that mean? Wait a minute. <laughs> so I want to read this. What I wrote, um, and I'm going to do my best not to tear up as I do it. Uh, I was trying to answer this, and it's kind of a difficult thing to do. I could tell you something my mother does. She serves and sacrifices for her children and grandchildren. Her career was built around kids, especially those who struggle and need help. She makes beautiful and creative art. When I was growing up, uh, many Christmases were paid for by art projects that my mom did and then sold. Uh, She makes amazing biscotti and caramels. If you got a cup of coffee, you want to be in mom's kitchen. Um, She's witty and has some great one-liners. We had a birthday party the other night, and mom said something that had all of us in stitches and tears. We were just laughing so hard. She's the queen of mixed metaphors, um, and I think I might be the prince. You guys have heard me do that once or twice. And she encourages me when all other voices are negative. I could tell you something about her character. She loves Jesus, his word, and is being transformed day by day into his image. She's self-sacrificial and always has been. Her time, talent, and treasure was poured into my sisters and I, and the same thing is now happening for our children, her grandchildren. She is an encourager and a comforter. I've never felt beat up or unwelcomed in my mother's presence. Instead, I've always felt loved and safe, even when I was being corrected. I think if I were to sum up my favorite thing about my mom, it is that she is safe. When I messed up in my youth, when I was hurt, when I was confused, when I was tired, when I'm hungry, when I needed someone to remind me of God's steadfast love, my mom was always there. And so I don't know what you would say about your mom, um, maybe what, what lines you would use to describe her, but I would encourage you to do so. And tell her that you're thankful. So, Mom, I love you. I'm thankful. Right? Yeah. Uh, The other question I was going to ask you today as we look at this set of verses, the humanity of Christ. We're going to talk about the importance of the incarnation, God becoming human, taking on flesh. Uh, What would you say is your favorite thing or one of your favorite things about Jesus? If you were going to describe him and say, one of my favorite things about Jesus is compassion. Mercy, forgiveness, patience. You're going to say persistence? It's true. <laughs> it's interesting, a lot of those things overlap, don't they? 
And so oftentimes our mom is an, an image of Christ to us as she embodies following him. And uh, what we're going to talk about this morning is the importance of the humanity of Christ. Why did God have to become human? Um, was there some other way that God could have saved us? And so that's what we'll talk about this morning. Let me pray and we'll read the first part of these verses together. Our Father in heaven, it is amazing that we can call you that. It is because of your son Jesus dying on the cross and redeeming us from our sin and making us his brothers and sisters that we can call you Father. And we recognize that your spirit dwells inside of us. And so what an amazing thing. We are children of the Father, brothers of the Son, and vessels of the Spirit. It's amazing what you have done for us. We thank you for making us a part of your family, a perfect family, a family that is growing as your gospel spreads across this earth. And we thank you that your son, he joined us in our humanity and he overcame our weakness and he is the victor that we could never be defeating sin and death and the devil. These amazing truths that we, we know about the gospel, I pray that these amazing truths would inspire us to be in awe of your son today. Each and every person here this morning would have uh, a growing sense of awe about who your son Jesus is and what he has done for us. God, if there's someone here this morning that has never trusted in your son Jesus, I pray that your spirit would draw them in today, that they would see their need and that they would surrender before the throne of grace, receiving from you what they could never earn for themselves, forgiveness of sin and new life. I pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. So let's read these verses together. I'm actually going to start in verse 9. And the discourse here has been about Jesus being greater than angelic beings. And he's going to kind of summarize his, uh, his thoughts about Jesus being greater than angelic beings in these verses. He says, but we, su- we do see Jesus made lower than angels for a short time, so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. And again, I will trust him again. Here I am with the children God gave me. So the first thing that he says here is that in Jesus's incarnation, he has brought many sons and daughters to glory. This is an interesting statement. Essentially what God is saying here is that through Jesus joining us in humanity, in our fallen nature, he was then able to lift us up and allow us to be vessels of himself and his glory. The unique characteristics and person of God are then shared with his children through what his son has done for us. So this is an amazing thing. The the greatest delight of a child of God is to know him and to make him known. Is that true for me? That's one of the first things that we learn here is that, is that if we're followers of Jesus Christ, he has actually given us the ability to embody, be vessels of his own glory, his own person, his own nature, his own power. He makes us partakers of the divine nature. His spirit indwells us and quickens us and gives us life. And we're totally transformed as that takes place. And so the the greatest delight of a child of God would be to know their God more and to make him known. Is that true for me? 
If you were to look back at the last week or the last month or the last year and say, the greatest joy I had in the last year was, we would probably answer with an experience we had, a trip we went on, a moment with another person. But what the scriptures teach us is that the greatest and fullest joy that we can have is knowing God as our father and making him known in the world around us. That's what God has given us the ability to do, to be partakers of his own person and then share his person, who he is and what he's done with the world around us. And there's no greater joy than that. You know this if you're a Christian. You know what it is to grow in your faith with God, to be closer to him as a father, to embrace Jesus more as a brother, to have the spirit empower you day in and day out as you are a part of his family. You know what it is to also share the gospel with somebody else and see someone else come to belief. You see the spirit of God waken their eyes and their heart and they see things for the first time for what they really are and they come into a relationship with God. You know what it is to see a Christian grow in their faith and take new steps of faith, conquer sin and defeat it through the power of the spirit within them and continue to grow. That's the greatest joy that we have is to know God and to make him known both with unbelievers and with each other so that we're all growing and moving forward in the kingdom. That is the greatest joy that we know. Is it true for me? Maybe you would answer that question differently. You would say that my greatest joy is not knowing God and making him known, it's something else. And that something else may even be a good thing. You might say your spouse, you might say your children, you might say your work, you might say something positive, you might say something negative. Life is terrible and so your greatest joy is escaping it through some sort of uh, substance that allows you to get away from it. God has something so much more for us as, as we know him and make him known. He said it was entirely appropriate that God for whom and through whom all things exist should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Maybe you don't know this, but you exist because God made you and you exist because God wants to know you. That's why we exist. Because God made us and because he wants to know us. He wants us to enjoy relationship with him. So he says that Jesus is the pioneer of, the, of, of our salvation and he was made perfect through suffering. The gospel is God's fitting and perfect plan of salvation. There is no question about it, no addition made to it, and no replacement for it. Right? There's nothing to add to the gospel of Jesus. He died on the cross and his death was sufficient to pay for sins once and for all. He rose from the dead, vindicating himself as the Messiah and then equipping his church and empowering us to live new lives. You don't need to add anything to it. There's no religious act to perform. There's nothing to add to the gospel and there's no replacement for it. There's no other religion. There's no self-improvement book. There's, there's nothing that our society could offer you. There's nothing out there that we need in addition to Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. There are lots of things we can joy, enjoy as we follow Jesus, but there's nothing that we need in addition to him and there is no replacement for him. And so God's plan is his son, Jesus. And Jesus has gone places and done something that no one before him has done. Jesus had the glory of God for all of eternity. He is God, he lives as God, he always will be God, but he stepped into our realm as a human. 
He's done something nobody else has done. The divine joined us in our humanity and then he has proved himself perfect in every way and done so through humility and suffering. If you read the gospels, and if you never have, you should. If you read the gospels, you see Jesus humble. He even said that he didn't come to be served but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. You see him suffering Uh, the rejection of his family, the rejection of one of his closest friends. You see him suffering and being scourged. Isaiah says that he was beaten beyond uh, what, he he appeared no longer to be human, he was beaten so badly, right? He he suffered and he went through anguish and he went all through all of this for us. And in John chapter 17, Jesus is praying what they call the high priestly prayer. He's praying on behalf of his disciples and for the disciples that they would make in his name. And he says this, I have glorified you on the earth, talking to his father, by completing the work that you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He's saying, I have, I've completed what you've sent me to do. I've spoke the truth about who you are, who we are, right? That's a weird thing to say, who God is, and what he wants to do for us and how he longs to save us and what his kingdom is like and what his word is about and what it would be like to have faith in him and relationship with him. He completed all of that and he now ascends to the right hand in a position of power and authority over everything but he is the pioneer of our salvation and he's been made perfect through sufferings. That also means that if he is the the pioneer, if he's the one that went first and we're following in his footsteps, then we would need to be people as followers of Jesus Christ who exhibit humility looking out for the needs of others above our own, and be willing to suffer on the behalf of someone else in order for them to have a better life, in order for them to have eternal life. This is where the poem or the the devotion that Kylie and the ladies read is so obvious that motherhood and what God has done, there's all this overlapping, right? There's all these places where we see uh, the willingness to give, the willingness to sacrifice, the willingness to, to suffer for someone else. But that's what Christ has done for us, and he calls us to follow in those steps. He goes on, he says, for the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one father. Sanctified means to be made holy, to to be transformed into something that we were not before. We used to be sinners, we used to love sin, and then God transforms us into righteous saints, holy ones who now love what is good right? That's, that's what he does for us. He sanctifies us. We used to love the ways of the world. We used to love the impulses of our flesh. We used to have a heart that was against God and God has given us a new heart and now we're no longer against him, but we are for him. We are with him and we are living out what he calls us to. We're being sanctified. We all have one father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. That's what he did when he came. He proclaimed the name of the father. He said he did nothing that was outside of the father's will. That's from Psalm 22. Singing hymns in the congregation, uh, trusting him, and here he is with the children that God gave him. That's from Isaiah chapter 8. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ is relational and familial, right? He has relationship with us. He wants to be uh, in close proximity to us. He's offered us to actually live inside of us through his own spirit. And then it's, he makes us part of his family, 
This is something that God does for us. I don't know what your family was like growing up. Mine was, was a great place. But some of you grew up in households that were not that. Some of you grew up in households where mom maybe wasn't there or dad wasn't really there or it was split and we saw brokenness in our families. Isn't that so common now where mom and dad split and go different directions and family is actually something that we would equate with brokenness. But the family of God is whole and complete. There is no brokenness. There is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Trinity of Trinities living together in harmony and inviting us into that peace and harmony, making us children of God. And so we are sons of the Father, siblings of the Son, and blessing, or excuse me, and vessels of the Spirit. And if that statement reads ordinary or mundane to you, read it again. I think sometimes as Christians, we can take this for granted. That I have become a son or daughter of the father. I was once his enemy. I was once far from him. I, I was once living in opposition to him. And now he's made me his son. He's made you his daughter. He's made us a part of his family. That's what God has done for us. He's also made us brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We're now co-heirs with him. And we enjoy this privileged relationship where our big brother, our Savior Jesus, has walked the path before us and given his life for us so that we could be saved. And we become vessels of the spirit and the same spirit, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives inside of us. Like if that reads ordinary to you, read it again. Never take this for granted. What God has done for us. Who Jesus sees us as. The next section of verses here. Now since the, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death that is the devil and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. A, a, a statement that there is a plan of salvation for humanity, but there is not for fallen angelic beings. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way, so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God, to make atonement for, for the sins of the people. For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is also able to help those who are tempted. He talks about the things that hold us down and how Jesus has overcome those, and the way that he overcome those was, overcame those was by joining us in our humanity in flesh and blood. He said that he destroyed the power of death that is the devil and that holds everyone in slavery with the fear of death. Have you ever met somebody who's not a Christian and they find themselves with cancer? Somebody who's not a Christian and they find themselves with a heart disease? They have to go in for open heart surgery and they don't have a relationship with God? It's, it's anxiety, it's fear, there's no hope. Because if the surgery doesn't go well, if the cancer wins, there's nothing on the other side of it. But what does the Apostle Paul say for Christians? He says that to live is Christ and to die is gain. In other words, my life here on earth is following my big brother Jesus as my Lord and my Savior and my God. Uh, he has pioneered the faith and I'm walking in his footsteps, willing to suffer, willing to go through difficulty for the betterment of others and for the sake of the gospel. And as I follow him, to live is to live him. To I have died with, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but the 
Christ lives in me, and I don't live my life in my own flesh, but I live it by the power of the Spirit of God who lives inside of me. I don't do what I do within my own ability, but I follow Jesus Christ. To live is Christ, but to die, remember when we read Revelation chapter 21 and 22, is gain. No more sin. No more pain. No more tears. No more broken nations. No more slavery. All of it goes away and only righteousness exists. And so if you live in fear of death as a Christian, it's natural, right? It's natural to feel that way. But we need to allow our minds to be transformed not by what is natural to us, but by the word of God, right? If we only do what's natural to us, we'll find ourselves sinning and thinking wrong all the time. But so we don't want to do what's natural to us. We want to be transformed by the word of God into the image of Christ so that we can see things, think about things, live rightly. And he says that he destroyed the power of death that is the devil. Uh, It's just so clear that the scripture teaches that we were once chained slaves to sin and our master was not ourselves but a fallen spiritual being named Satan who has control over us and then Christ frees us and breaks the chains and makes us a part of his family. So this passage explains the how of the gospel. How does God save sinful humans? To save those who were flesh and blood Christ himself had to become flesh and blood. To save the race of Adam, Jesus became the last Adam. And then it talks about being Abraham's offspring. Paul talks about this in Galatians and in the book of Romans. And Abraham believed, and it was a credit to him as righteousness. And so how do we become right in God's eyes? We believe him. We take him at his word. We see Jesus dying on the cross and yelling out it is finished and sin is paid in full and we say, I believe that his death on the cross is sufficient to pay for my sins. I don't need to add anything to it. But out of a sense of gratitude for who he is, I long to follow my risen Lord and live my life for him with the hope of eternity that he has laid up for me. I'm gonna trust him at his word. Do you trust him at his word? And you go to the script, what is the society saying about fill in the blank? I know what society's saying. What do the scriptures say about this topic? What does the scripture say about money? What does the scripture say about sexuality? What does the scripture say about hope? What does the scripture say about salvation? What does the scripture say about righteousness? What does the scripture say about sin? I trust him at his word. And so sinful humankind are saved by the sinless man, Jesus. Do you believe that you need a savior? Do you believe that there's, there's something fundamentally broken inside of you? And that Christ died for that fundamental brokenness. He overcame it. He overcame uh, our broken, crooked nature so that we could be made whole. Do you believe this? That your sin is paid in full and you're made new? That's what he's done for us. He's overcome slavery, the fear of death. He's overcome the devil. He wants us to respond to him in faith. And then it says in verse 17, therefore he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Let me just read that top part real quick. Verse 17, it says that he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way. People will ask, couldn't have God saved us some other way? 
Why did Jesus, do we really need Jesus to die on our behalf? I mean, he's God, couldn't he have saved us some other way? This verse tends to indicate no. That the means of salvation had to be the death of God's son. That there was no option B. There wasn't an option where you improved yourself. There wasn't an option where you followed Buddha. There wasn't an option where you listened to Muhammad. There wasn't an option where you paid attention to Joseph Smith. There wasn't an option where you picked something else, New Age religion. The only option was for the Son of God to go to the cross and pay for your sin so that you could be redeemed and saved. There is no plan B. He had to become like us. He had to join us in our humanity so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest. The high priest, what he did was, I'll explain that in a minute, let me get there. Make atonement for the sins of the people. That word atonement means, if you just look at it, it says at one mint. How do we become at one with God? We need a substitutionary sacrifice to do two things. To wash away the guilt of sin, it's called expiation, Right, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the expiation of Christ. No, um, that's why they don't let theologians write songs. Um, but expiation is to wash away sin and propitiation is God looks at the payment and he says, I am satisfied with the payment. God's wrath was satisfied by Jesus's death on the cross, fulfilling the requirements of the law so that we could be saved and freed. That's what atonement is. It's expiation, washing away sin, propitiation, satisfying God's righteous requirements of the law, which was death. We also see typology in these verses. Jesus not only fulfills the role of an Old Testament high priest once and for all, but acts as a type for believers in the world today. Peter actually says that we have become a a kingdom of priests that we represent the people around us to God. That's what the priest did. He would walk out and he would represent the nation of Israel to God. And we follow in that pattern. We can pray for those around us. We can reach out to those around us. We can share the word of God with those around us. We act as priests in this way, pointing not to the sacrifice of animals, but to the sacrifice of God's son for salvation. Uh, the importance of the incarnation is also salvific or leading to salvation. In other words, if it didn't happen, there would be no salvation. Without a high priest, there's no atonement. Without atonement, there's no peace with God. Um, without blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. The, the penalty of, of sin is death, and that penalty was paid by Jesus Christ. We cannot be saved without Jesus' actions on our behalf and in our place. And then the last part of this is that it's relational. Uh, Jesus has experiential knowledge of what it is to be human. And it's interesting what he describes. Here's how the writer of Hebrews says, this is what it is to be human, suffering and temptation. We're going to go through difficulty and we're going to be tempted not to follow God, but to follow our own lust. We're going to be tempted not to follow God, but the world. We're going to be tempted to not follow his word, but what the world around us is saying. We're going to go through difficult things and we're going to be tempted. Jesus did both of those things. He suffered and he went through temptation. He overcame both and he did so in a way that was merciful, faithful, and compassionate. He knows whatever it is you're going through right now. He understands it. He cares about you. And he wants to take the brokenness that you're experiencing and actually use it to transform you into his own image. He'll actually take what is bad and turn it into something that is good. So the importance of the incarnation is 
typological, salvific, and relational. In order to conquer death, through death, the Son of God became a human being. And verse 17 says he had to. Not just any human being, but the high priest. And so we'll get into this more as we go through the book of Hebrews, but uh, the high priest in Old Testament, there's at least a couple things we want to look at. Uh, The first one is that the people of Israel looked to the priesthood for mediation before God. So think about Moses in the Old Testament and they make it to Sinai and God's presence is on the mountain and the people see God's presence on the mountain and they say, we do not want to go near it. It looks dangerous. And that's because God is dangerous when you're in sin. And so they say, Moses, would you go And so Moses goes and he's mediating between God and the people. And then the priesthood takes this up. They mediate between God and the people. The book of Leviticus, if you were to read it, one, it's kind of confusing, but let me tell you what it's about. Here's a whole group of people that are sinful and broken and God is holy and righteous. How do the sinful and broken come into the presence of holy and righteous? That's what the book of Leviticus is about. It's about cleaning and washing away and atoning for the sin of the people so that they can be in the presence of God. And there's a whole bunch of typology there that points forward to Jesus. But that's what they did for the people. The day of atonement, um, Yom Kippur, the high priest represented all of the people before God and offered a substitutionary sacrifice on behalf of the people. Jesus does all of these once and for all. He offers not the blood of goats and bulls, but his own blood to wash away sin and to make atonement for us so that God would be satisfied. And here's the crazy thing, is that most of us recognize our brokenness more than we do what God has done for us. Most of us know our sin really clear. But here's the crazy thing, is though we know our sin Christ, God sees us in Christ's righteousness. Though we would think that we could not approach the Father, Christ has washed away and atoned for our sin so that we can approach him with boldness. When Jesus said, pray this way, Father in heaven, everybody around him went, beg your pardon? Who in heaven? Father. I want you to call him your father. I want you to reach out to him as Abba or Daddy. I want you to see him as the one who would care for you, the one who would lead you, the one who would put his arm around you and and guide you, correct you, but guide you with love. This was something that was a wild idea. And yet that's exactly what we can do. We can approach the God of holiness and righteousness, not with fear of our sin and death, but with confidence because of what Christ has done for us. And so the holiness of God made right the depravity of humanity. Jesus is greater, Jesus is better, Jesus is all we need. Do you believe this? Is Jesus all you need? I want to read something I wrote about our Savior. And it's really about salvation. Prestige can't save you. Money can't do it. Your work can't do it and your accomplishments can't save you. Popularity won't save you. The right friends, social media, they don't have what it takes. Power won't save you. The government can't do it, the Democrats can't do it, the Republicans can't do it, and the made-up third party in your head can't do it. (laughs) Pleasure won't save you. 
Experiences can't save you. There's no place you can visit, plane you can ride, or view you can take in. That's all fine and enjoyable, but none of those things will ever save you. Possessions can't save you. Not your house, your car, your toys, or any of the stuff. They don't even slightly have what it takes to save you. Your family can't save you. Mom can't do it. Dad can't do it. Your spouse can't do it. And your kids can't do it. Religion can't save you. Buddha can't do it. Muhammad can't do it. Allah can't save you. Joseph Smith can't save you. New Agers can't do it. Not even Moses could do it. There's no guru, shaman, rabbi, priest, pastor, or prophet, or otherwise, who can save you. Jesus is the only name that saves. He stands alone in humility, suffering, and anguish. The man of sorrows, the lamb of God who died for the sins of the world. Mocked, beaten, and crucified in our place and for our sin. And now he stands alone, even higher at the Father's right hand with all authority and dominion as the resurrected King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the conqueror of sin, death, and the devil, the redeemer of your life, the anchor of your soul, the giver of eternal life, the way, the truth, and the life, the light of the world, the good shepherd, the true vine, the resurrection, and the life. He knows your trials, your temptations, and your pain. He can give it all meaning and use it for good. Everything is, is, is in subjection to him, and one day every knee will bow before him. He is holy, he is worthy, he is mighty, he is love, he is mercy, he is grace. He is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Lord, and our God. This Jesus is the stone rejected by the builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Who is Jesus to you? What stands out to you about Jesus? What I'd encourage you to do this morning as Micah and Kylie and Bonnie sing this song over us is to write down what Jesus is impressing upon you. And then spend some time this week focused on the person and work of Jesus. Look up scripture about whatever he's impressing upon you. Uh, studies have shown that if you, if you go to scripture one time during the week, it makes no real difference in your life. Two times, negligible. Three times, negligible. People that go four times or more are living transformed lives. Go to the scriptures daily, over and over. Search out your Lord and your Savior and know him well. Let's behold him. Thanks for tuning in and joining us today. We hope that this message encourages you to continue taking steps towards seeking and understanding God's truth. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we're so glad that you are a part of the family.